everyone, and welcome to Coastal Crimes. I'm Jen, your host, and this week I am bringing you a story from Tokyo. As one of the most exciting cities in the world, Tokyo offers more than just Harajuku looks and men's tailoring. Here's a look at the most interesting facts about Japan's capital. Tokyo is the largest metropolitan in the world, hosting over 36 million people spread over three prefectures. It was formerly known as Edo in the 20th century. The name was changed to Tokyo in 1890 in light of the Meiji Restoration. Great for tax-free shopping, Tokyo is one of the best shopping destinations in the world. Head over to Giza, the world-renowned shopping district, for major international labels including Chanel, Cartier, and Bulgari. For those looking for more unusual or cutting-edge trends, the Harajuku and Ometesando neighborhoods are the place to go. The Harajuku district in Tokyo is famous for its alternative street fashion. It is the center of Japan's most extreme teenage cultures and style. The focal point of the Harajuku's teenage culture is Takashita Dori. The cherry blossom is the national symbol of Japan. In April, the trees flower for two weeks. This period is known as Hanami. The Tokyo Tower is a communications and observation tower in the Shiba Koen district. It was originally inspired by the Eiffel Tower, which makes sense because of their similar appearance. Tokyo has the most top-rated restaurants in the world. It is home to over 14 three-star Michelin restaurants. And Tokyo's Ritz-Carlton is home to one of the most expensive suites in the world. The room, designed by Frank Nicholson, costs 15,500 British pounds, which converts to about $21,490.46. Tokyo's Imperial Palace is a large tourist attraction that is mostly closed to the public. However, some special areas are open to the public on the Emperor's birthday and New Year. And last but not least, the Shibuya Crossing, located in the Shibuya Ward, is rumored to be the busiest intersection in the world. At peak times, over 1,000 people cross at the same time, coming from all directions. Now, on to my case. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Miyazawa family murder, or as some people know it, the Setagaya family murder. But Setagaya is actually the place where they were found and where they lived, but the actual family's name is Miyazawa, so that's why I named it Miyazawa family murder, to honor the family instead of the city. The Miyazawa family murder is one of the most infamous cold cases in Japan. Before I get started, I do want to give an advisory. Um, This episode doesn't contain violence against children, so listener discretion is advised. It's scary enough to think that there are people out there who kill without a thought, without motive or a grudge. They can easily take a life, no matter how innocent it is. Some killers stake out their targets while others kill when they see an opportunity. There are those who are meticulous in their planning and leave the crime scene spotless, while others wreak havoc and leave a trail of blood and bodies. This killer is different. On December 30th, 2020, one of the most infamous criminal cases in Japan's history turned 20 years old. A senseless murder of a family of four in Tokyo's neighborhood of Setagaya has caught both the Japanese and international public's attention, with countless amounts of articles dedicated to this tragedy. 
However, the passage of time, and in the case of international publications, the language barrier has muddled many details and blown some up. The person responsible for killing a family of four in their house while they slept was neither indiscreet and spotless in his murders, nor was he showy. There were no messages on the wall written with blood or dismembering of the bodies, but instead there were ample amounts of DNA, fingerprints, and even clothing left behind that belonged to the killer. Why was the killer so relaxed and nonchalant about murdering an entire family? Was this his first crime, or was he so comfortable with killing that he hung out at the house for hours while bodies around him slowly bled out and went through rigor mortis? I did what I could to gather up all the information I could find on the case, but based on reputable sources. This means that anyone familiar with this unsolved mystery may find some information missing. And it could be because I missed it, which is very likely, or because they are false or the Japanese police don't think of them as important. With all that said, this is the case of the Setagaya House family murders that took place in Tokyo in 2000. The killer was able to escape detection, has not been identified, and the case still baffles Tokyo police to this day. When the Miyazawa family moved to Kamisoshigaya Street in 1991, the place was bustling with houses, with over 200 residential buildings scattered in the vicinity. 44-year-old Mikio worked for a foreign-affiliated marketing company and was a fan of anime and theater. His wife, Yasuko, 41 years old, worked from home as a home tutor. Nina, 8 years old, was a smart and active girl who loved ballet and piano lessons. Ray, six years old, was in kindergarten and had a mental disability requiring special needs. He was obsessed with dinosaurs. At the back, the house was neighboring a part of the park where little kids played, called Juju Train Park. Teenagers also used this as a skate park and a late night hangout spot. Soon, the Miyazawas started to lose more and more of their neighbors, who sold their land to the city. Tokyo already had plans for this area, to expand nearby Soshigaya Park and the houses were being bought out and demolished to make room for the park expansion. By the time the year 2000 rolled by, there were only four houses left. One of them belonged to Yasuko's older sister, Anne, but for most of the time it was occupied by the sister's mother. Anne and her son spent eight years living in England and only got back to Setagaya in the spring of 2000. Her husband was an engineer at a big automobile company. Some rumors claimed he worked with a Formula One team, and he was often overseas. This nearly empty home was the place where Yasuko would tutor children. She didn't have a lot of distance to cover. The two buildings were so close, they could be mistaken for a semi-detached house. I put this photo on my website, and if you take a look at it, it looks like one house with a garage um, towards the right. So actually, that little house that's on the right is where the family lived and then the big house that's on the the left or in the in the center is her sister's house where Yasuko tutors the children. The close proximity that the two houses had to each other had Mikio feeling uneasy. He worried it could lead to family troubles in the future. So he pro he proposed soundproofing both places for privacy reasons and Anne agreed. 
Both families, just like their neighbors, planned to eventually move away from Kamisoshigawa and had already sold off their land to the city. But Yusuko was hesitating. She worried about her children acclimating to a new place, especially since her youngest, Ray, had a dis- developmental disorder. In the end, they never got to move. On the night of December 30th, the Miyazawa's family's quiet life was cut short. The family had spent the day shopping, enjoying dinner, and watching TV before heading to bed. Sometime later in the night, or early hours of the morning, the killer decided to enter the Miyazawa home. As more time passes, the less is certain about the murderer's actions. According to the most widely accepted version, he enters Miyazawa's house by climbing up a tree, removing a window screen, and going through a small window on the second floor bathroom. The perpetrator's first target is Ray's bedroom, located right next to the bathroom. He finds the youngest one sleeping and strangles him. Ray is the only victim killed by strangling, and the only one who doesn't have any stab wounds or any blood stains on his body. It's in this bedroom where police find the most footprints. The next victim is thought to be the father, Mikio. Police assume that before the assault, he was on the first floor working. I think Mikio heard noises and came to check on Ray, only to come face to face with the killer. Despite fighting back, the killer was able to use a long, thin sashimi knife to end Mikio's life. His body was found on the first floor, at the bottom of the stairs. He had many wounds, mainly in the thighs and buttocks area, but stab wounds were also found on both his arms, chest, and face. His cause of death was ruled to be a blood loss resulting from stab wounds to the chest. The stabbing was so severe that the knife broke off in Mikio's head, leaving a fragment behind. The last victims are mother and daughter who were sleeping together in the attic, accessible by a folding ladder located on the second floor, close to the bathroom. They were stabbed multiple times, mainly in the face and neck area. First, continuing to use the broken sashimi knife, and then an all-purpose kitchen knife that he must have gotten from the house. Yasuko decided to run with Nina right around the time the perpetrator went to grab the knife. Bleeding heavily, she took Nina in her arms and carried her down the stairs. The criminal must have noticed them and delivered the final blows. Both bodies were found crouched with their backs touching. Yasuko's mother, who found the family the next day, expressed her horror. In this small house, you are not left with much space to flee if you encounter the perpetrator. They must have been extremely terrified, she said. Police investigators also expressed their shock at the stabbing deaths, saying, He slashed them from above the chest to the face as if he tormented them. It was extremely brutal, and the way he finished them off in the very end, it was so horrific. We couldn't show those scars to the devastated victims' families. There are no other cases in which the victims have been cut up like this. Nina died last. Her case of death was determined to be cervical spinal cord injury caused by a backstab wound. Additionally, her first and third tooth was found missing, which suggested she was not only stabbed, but also beaten. Police have found bloodstains on the futon, which suggests they were attacked while sleeping. A bloody tissue was lying on the attic's floor, presumably used by Yasuko to try and stop Nina's bleeding. After killing the family, the perpetrator went to Biazawa's kitchen area. 
He took out a few small cups of ice cream from the fridge. Strangely, he didn't use a spoon. Instead, he squeezed the containers upwards and proceeded to bite the ice cream. For a drink, he chose barley tea, ignoring cola and beer left in the fridge. The kitchen is also where he had found a band-aid, which he used to try to patch a wound on his right hand. At one point, he rummaged through the family's documents from the first floor storage. He pulled out all the drawers and took one of them to the second floor bathroom. He dumped them into the bathtub. Yasuko's personal belongings from her two handbags, Mikio's wallet, house keys, and various documents met a similar fate. The perpetrator threw them into the toilet where he had previously taken care of business. Other items, like a white towel smeared with the perpetrator's blood and an empty cup of ice cream, was also dumped in. What we know for sure is the perpetrator was still at the house at 1 a.m. At 1.18 a.m., he connected to the internet using Mikio's computer. During five minutes of usage, he created a new folder and visited a theater's website. This site was bookmarked by Mikio. We don't know about his later whereabouts. The family was discovered in the morning around 10 a.m. by Yasuko's mother, who lived next door and couldn't reach them by phone. The killer had apparently unplugged the phone line. Finding it odd that no one was answering, Yasuko's mother came over and rang the doorbell. When there was no answer, she used the spare key she had and entered to find Mikio by the front door. For years, the public was meant to believe the perpetrator escaped in the morning due to the computer connecting to the internet for a second time around 10 a.m. It wasn't until 2014 when the police published a bombshell. The second connection was most likely an accident. The computer mouse found by the police had fallen under the table and connected to Mikio's company's website, which was set as Mikio's homepage. Japanese police ran an experiment using the exact type of Macintosh computer the Miyazawa family had used. They concluded the most probable outcome was Yasuko's mother dropping a mouse by accident when she found the bodies and then it connected to the internet. This information complicated an already difficult case. The previous theory didn't leave a lot of time for the culprit to get away. Yasuko's mother came to her daughter's house after 10 a.m. to check on them. One of Miyazawa's family's relatives called the police at 10.56 a.m. This means if the murderer was really accessing the internet, he would have little to no time to escape. With this theory being proven untrue, the perpetrator could have escaped any time between 1.30 a.m. and 10 a.m. Did he climb back out the window? Did he leave out the front door? Since he left all his belongings and possibly had a change of clothes, the police had no idea how to begin a search. But using what they had, police were able to get a better description of who they were looking for. The other troubling point is the criminal's point of entry. Did he really use the small bathroom window? One of the investigators in an interview with Excite magazine revealed that the police had some doubts about this. He himself found the perp's pristine state of clothes to be downright bizarre. His jacket and fanny pack bore no signs of abrasion or wear, and no linen or fiber was left on the window. The only other way in was the front entrance. The problem is that this door was locked. For this theory to be plausible, the murderer would have to be an acquaintance of the family the kind who would be let in even in the late evening. 
The supporters of this theory have pointed out that the footprints left in blood were going only upwards, starting from the middle of the first floor stairs. If the criminal wasn't an intruder, but truly someone who was invited in, he would have been expected to remove his shoes at the home's entrance. Bloody footprints could be explained by blood making stairs slippery, forcing him to wear shoes once again. One way or another, he must have used the window in some way. Police noted the bathroom window was open with the mosquito screen removed and lying outside. And under the window, they found footprints of a size similar to the perpetrator's one. Broken tree branches near the park's fence are assumed to be his work as well. Still, with all this uncertainty, the police found ample amounts of evidence the killer had left behind and begun their investigation. Here's a recap of some of the most shocking things they discovered about the killer and the crime. The killer used Mikio's computer to log onto the internet at 1.18 a.m. after murdering the family. The killer used first aid to mend the wounds he had gotten from the struggle while killing the family. The killer ate lots of ice cream and drank tea. He took a nap on the second floor couch. He left the murder weapon, which was a sashimi knife. The killer left fingerprints and other DNA on the weapon and on parts of the home. He left his hat, scarf, gloves, fanny pack, jacket, and shirt in the house. He even left his shoes and shoe prints at the house. And last but not least, he left an unflushed bowel movement in the toilet, which police examined and found contained string, bean, string beans and sesame seeds, which was most likely part of his previous meal. So who is this guy? Who is the perpetrator? Due to the unprecedented nature of the murder from the very beginning, a large group of policemen were involved. To this day, 280,000 of them tried to help solve the case. At first, investigators were hopeful. Despite all the fingerprints, DNA evidence, murder weapon, and many clues as to what the killer might look like, their expectations were quickly shattered. Over 5 million people had their fingerprints checked. Neighbors, all kinds of criminals, family friends, ex-residents, hospital patients with wounds on their hands, you name it. Police tried DNA testing also, with 1.3 million tries and none of them matched. But police were able to use what they found in the house to come closer to finding the identity of the killer. Police believe he was slim because the fanny pack he left had a waist length between 70 and 75 centimeters, which is 27 to 29 inches. Based on his clothes, he was between the ages of 15 and 35 and was about 170 centimeters tall, which is about five feet, six inches. His shoes were a Korean shoe with a 280 size that is not sold in Japan, and the hair strands found in his fanny pack suggest he had dark brown or black short hair. Researchers also found an intriguing piece of information. In 2005, they announced the perpetrator most likely having Southern European roots on his mother's side. They concluded that either his mother or one of his grandparents came from a country close to the Adriatic Sea. His father, on the other hand, was an East Asian, so he could be Japanese, but he could also be Korean or Chinese. Fingerprints showed that he didn't have a criminal record, and DNA blood testing revealed that he was most likely a male, type A blood, and not of Japanese descent. Police reports show, quote, 
The killer was a male of Asian extraction. His DNA carried a marker from his father that occurs in one out of every 13 Japanese, one out of about 10 Chinese, and one in every five or so Koreans. Based on, based on mitochondrial DNA, his mother had an ancestor originating from the southern Mediterranean area, probably around the Adriatic, end quote. Japanese police have asked South Korea for help with identifying this culprit. It was the first request of this, ki of this kind, but it was ultimately refused by the South Korean government. Big surprise there. <laughs> Some speculate the intruder has an army background due to his walking style. Small steps taken with his back planted to the wall. According to one of the investigators, he could have walked like this to avoid slipping from the bloodied stairs. The murderer left a lot, if not his whole outfit, behind, on the sofa in Miyazawa's living room. In international circles, the most attention has fallen on his fanny pack, where the police found traces of sand, supposedly originating in the southwest of America. Curiously enough, while some Japanese newspapers did mention this finding, there is no information about it on the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department's website. The murderer's fanny pack was a well-used one. It was relatively small, fitting an A5 notebook, and was sold in Japan from September 1995 to January 1999. The bag cost just under $30 and was produced in Korea. In blacklight tests, some traces of red fluorescent agent were found as well as the perpetrator's dark hair strands. The scarf, used as a muffler, is the item most difficult to pinpoint. It's unknown who produced it and where it was sold. According to information police received, the scarf was given away as a freebie at places like game centers, arcades, or uniform stores. Similar to the bag, the muffler was also well used. Western onlookers focused on the bad, but for the Japanese public, the shoes were the most interesting element. British brand Slazingers had produced this particular model in South Korea. It was sold in both South Korea and Japan, but only South Korea sold the shoe in the size matching the perpetrator's footprints. Other evidence, such as soil particles found on the shoes and on the clothing, were also traced to South Korea's Gyeonggi province, province <laughs> making it more possible that there was a Korean connection to the killer. This is the second item originating from South Korea. The shoes weren't the only suspicious item left by the perp. His nondescript thin sweatshirt has also caused quite a stir. In Tokyo, only 10 of them were sold in now closed stores of MX. Even if we count the whole country, the number of stores reported only 130 articles sold. The rest of the outfit was composed of a gray knitted bucket hat, a black padded jacket from Uniqlo, and black one-size gloves. The hat was sold from September 1999 to November 2000. The jacket, size large, was a 2000 release, available in stores since September 2000. Gloves were produced by Jap Japanese brand Edwin and were purchasable from 1998 to 2000. Some of the clothes retrieved by the police smelled like Dracar Noir, a French perfume, sold in Japan since 1982. The last items, which were given a lot of attention by Japanese police, were two black handkerchiefs, manufactured by a Japanese brand Muji. 
One of them was most likely used by the criminal to wrap up the murderer's weapon handle. It had a three centimeter long cut in the middle of the fabric. According to the Tokyo police's informers, this technique is used by Chinese workers at a fish factory to prevent the knife from slipping when cleaning seafood. Takeshi Suchida, who was the lead investigator when the murder occurred, continues to work on the case unofficially even though he is retired. In an interview in 2019, he said, It's been 19 years, and despite so many clues left behind, the fingerprints and the DNA of the criminal, why can't we find him? He also feels regret about the investigation when the murders first happened. Quote, when the incident happened, the special investigators at the Tokyo Metropolitan Police were all working on different cases and had no choice but to send their reserve team. Also, as it was New Year's Eve, many detectives were at home and it took time to send the investigators. We can't deny the possibility that this led to an unresolved case. End quote. After Suchida retired, his replacement, Manabu Ide, continues to keep the case alive. I don't think there is any detective who is not confident, he said. It's our mission to arrest the criminal who murdered four innocent people, including two young children, and make him atone for his crime. Police had a lot of evidence, but the one thing they lacked were witnesses. They had just two supposed sightings. The first one came from a woman, who claimed she was near the crime scene driving a car sometime after 11.30 and suddenly she spotted a man who rushed out of Miyazawa's neighborhood and jumped right before her car. He managed to evade her vehicle and run away, but she did say she hit him. And this information was dismissed by the police because they didn't find any signs of blood on the street. The other sighting happened the day after the murder. In Nico, a man with a wound on his arm was spotted at Tobu Nico Station, around two, two to three hours away from Setagaya. He received treatment from a station worker. Once again, the police didn't find the information helpful. His wound, which was so deep you could see a bone, didn't fit with the police's image of the perpetrator's state. The whereabouts of the intruder are unknown after that. What we have is an image of him before the murder. He was spotted by a supermarket camera near Kichiyoji Station's northern exit, which is two stations away from Ogikubo. That is where the murder weapon was purchased. Now I'm sure you're thinking at this point, just like I am, how about motive? Who would want to kill this entire family who seemingly kept to themselves most of the time? The police have created three possible motives, money, a grudge, or one that is unknown to the authorities. So technically I guess two possible motives. <laughs> The money theory tends to bring a lot of skeptics out, which is no wonder. The suspect only stole 150,000 yen, which is around $1,400, from Miyazawa's house. Many doubt someone would kill an entire family for such a negligible amount, but yet those cases do happen. In 2009, in the city of Kaini, near Nagoya, a Chinese exchange student killed two people and injured one in a robbery gone wrong. All he stole was a cheap watch and the equivalent of $2,000, which he intended to use to pay off his shoplifting fine. There are a couple of downsides to this theory. 
First of all, for someone who wasn't in a hurry, he didn't take all of the money in the house. He left around 190,000 yen and foreign currency totaling to 5,000 dollars yen, which is or no, 5,000 yen, which is around 46 dollars. Still that's not very much, but if you're going to be stealing money, you might as well take it all. The method of killing was also very excessive. If it was a random kill, why would he kill Yasuko and Nina, who were sleeping in the attic, and be so vicious in his attacks? Which brings us to the second motive, a grudge. This is where the severity of the attacks comes into play. Besides Ray, who was strangled, the rest of the family met a horrible, gruesome death. Both Nina and Yasuko were stabbed in the face area mostly. Could it be a grudge he held towards one of them? Or maybe he just hated women? What makes this theory even more plausible is that out of 10 items left by the intruder, five could have been bought around Ogikubo Station. Police think he may have lived on the west side of Tokyo and moved by JR Chuo Line and Keio Line, which puts him not far away from Soshigaya Park. However, there are people who doubt this theory too. Some investigators suspected the intruder throwing away his stuff and destroying things could be camouflage and a part of an elaborate plan to take police off his tracks. The strangeness of this murder leaves a lot of place for imagination. In reality, the murderer could have an entirely different motive. On the international sites, one of the most popular opinions is skaters' involvement. I mean, the Miyazawas were living just next to the skate park. The noisy surroundings may have led to some conflicts. The murderer being a skater was the Japanese police's first theory. The internet provides many testimonies claiming Mikio was often arguing with skaters, who were using benches in Choo Choo Train Park as a ramp. As it was mentioned before, the criminal could have lived somewhere near Ogikubo, a place close to Soshigaya Park. It's possible he came in contact with the Biazawas before the murder took place. But on the other side, some point out that Slazingers would make an unusual pair of shoes for skateboarding. Their fingerprints were most likely checked also. In Japan, due to items left by the perpetrator, and the tendency to assume every criminal is a foreigner, the popular theory is the murderer is a Korean citizen. The more sensational tale, written by a journalist in Ichihashi Fumiya, tells the story of Miyazawa being involved with the Korean Unification Church. Since they didn't want to sell off their land to the church, they got murdered by an assassin. Police investigators claim the writer fabricated the story and repudiate the claims in the book. Other guesses revolve around the murderer just being mentally ill or a robbery gone wrong. I mean, maybe we'll never know. When everything goes wrong and the case goes cold, there is just one flicker of hope. Science. A research institute in Shizuoka is currently working on establishing a more detailed look of the perp, based on DNA left at the crime scene. According to a scientist working on this case, there is a possibility of figuring out if the perpetrator had any illnesses, what his skin color is, and even details about his facial features. Could this mean we will finally get an answer on who the culprit is? The police remain skeptical. Contrary to the United States, which was built on immigrants, Japan is a homogeneous country, which means there isn't a lot of interest in finding out family roots. 
The children's mother, Mikio's mother, shared her memories of her grandchildren. Quote, Nina loved to show me her moves. She was just a bright and adorable child. I always wonder how they would have grown up. My biggest regret is that I never got to see them grow up. End quote. Their grandmother was so traumatized by the ordeal that she can't recall the family's funeral and could not walk, so she had to be carried to the ceremony. She still wonders why the killer committed such a brutal act. Why would they kill the children as well? If someone held grudges, they could just kill the adults. I just don't understand why. I really don't, she said. It has been over 20 years since the family was murdered, and despite the thousands of tips, calls, and over 280,000 police working on the case over the years, the killer still remains at large. The house still stands by the park, a constant reminder of the awful crime that took the lives of an innocent family. Though police have acquired all the evidence they need for, the ca for their case, the house has not yet been torn down because relatives of the family want to keep the memory of the family alive until the killer is caught and the family can be at peace. However, I did just read an article yesterday, so after I had already wrote this, um, saying that the government is finally saying the house needs to be torn down because it's a hazard. So it looks like it probably won't be standing for much longer. Um, but the police have offered to pay 200 million yen, which is about 1,824,567 US dollars, as a reward to anyone who provides key information leading to the murderer's arrest. Anyone with any information is urged to call 03-3482-0110. As of December 2020, 13,658 tips have been provided to the police. So, if this story sounds familiar to you, or if you know anything at all, I mean, it's a long shot, but if you do, please, please call. And that is today's case. I know it was a little bit of a short one, but it's a really important one, and it is one of Tokyo's, oh no, it is Tokyo's longest and most infamous cold case. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, please email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.